the book of Zechariah one more time. It was almost two, but it's going to be one. I hope you're hungry. If you're planning on feasting tomorrow, the Lord really put it on my heart to give you a feast tonight. I have been feeding on this word all week long. In fact, I'm, I'm in overdrive right now. I've, I've already studied for uh, Sunday because I'm going to be taken tomorrow and the next day off just to be with my family. So I'm somewhere between Zechariah and Malachi. We will be in Malachi. In fact, you know what we could do? We could do Zechariah 13 and 14 and just go right on into Malachi tonight if you'd like to. Some of you are not sure if you should take me seriously or not. <laughs> no, then I'd have to study some more for Sunday. So we'll just we'll finish Zechariah tonight. This is uh, good stuff as it has been. Very powerful. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Say it with me one more time. The Lord remembers. The Lord. Amen. The Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. You remember that, you will remember Zechariah. Because that is the book in a nutshell. It's amazing to me, and I didn't come up with that. God was the one who you know, saw that Zechariah was named as such. But it's remarkable to me that when I think about that name, and I go through that phrase in my own head, and I do this from time to time during the week. The Lord remembers and the Lord blesses at the appointed time. And you know there are few things that are more encouraging than that. But on top of it, it's amazing how that focuses us on what the book of Zechariah is about. It's all about the appointed time. It's about calling the people to readiness for the appointed time. And there's only one reason the appointed time has not yet come. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The heart of God, in a nutshell, for all to come to repentance, it is His great desire. And so He waits. And so He waits. We were singing that on Sunday morning. uh, Hungry, I come to you. But the song says, and so I wait for you, I wait for you. And as we were singing it, I was thinking, no, no, you're waiting for us. He waits. He is so patient. But the day is coming. Make no mistake about it. A day in which He will make all things clean and new. Zechariah 13, verse 1, as we continue on in the last prophecy of Zechariah. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Now, this is going to be an actual, literal fountain, as we'll see in a bit. But the message here as we get on into this part of the prophecy is a spiritual message. For you see, this fount is about the cleansing of sin and impurity, which is a spiritual problem. The fount is a reminder there will be this physical fountain, this physical river flowing out of the temple in Jerusalem that will stand as a reminder of the cleansing power of God. Because you see, what Jesus does when a person repents, when someone turns around and comes to Him, is He opens up a fount. The word here for fountain is makor in the Hebrew, and it means a wellspring. It means the source. Like the source of the water bubbling up out of the ground, spraying up out of the ground. This prophecy reveals for us a vast difference between an Old Testament law concept and a New Testament grace concept. And the Old Testament concept, we've talked about before, is that of atonement. 
God atoned for the sins of the people. The sacrifices would bring about atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And atonement was simply covering. It's a graphic picture of God saying, I will cover your sin for now. I got you covered. You're out to lunch with a friend and you open up your wallet and you got nothing. I got you covered this time. But there's something owed. There's something unfinished. There's something that is not done. Atonement is not a finished work. Atonement is ongoing. It is constant. Daily, the priests in the temple making sacrifice for the people. That's the Old Testament concept. The New Testament concept is propitiation, grace, a complete cleansing, and the fountain shows us that picture. But what's marvelous is this has been God's plan all along. Since the very beginning, we see this concept all the way through the Bible, like like a river of life running throughout Scripture, landing us in that place where Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, There is no greater power than the blood. It is the greatest cleansing agent in history, the blood of Christ. And as He died on the cross and poured out that blood, God offers the cleansing that He talked about, again, all the way through Scripture. Psalm 51, verse 2, David, in the midst of his sinful sorrow, says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's not an atonement idea. That's a propitiation idea. Where did David get it? Except that he was a man after God's own heart. David would write further down. Psalm 51 verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The Lord spoke through Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 1 verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. He says in verse 18 of Isaiah 1. Come now and let us reason together. Says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet. They will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson. They will be like wool. That's not atonement. That's propitiation. That is a total washing. Of course Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. That Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, as we talked about on Sunday morning, holy ones. That the church might be hagios. That we might be the the Hagioi who return with Jesus because we were presented as the spotless bride to Jesus by the work of His blood on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11, continuing this running theme through the Scriptures. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You see, Messiah is Makor. He is the source. Jesus is the wellspring of living water. And he said as much himself on more than one occasion. The first time, he, he had to go to Samaria. Now what's interesting is if you look at a map, he didn't have to go to Samaria. In fact, Jews avoided Samaria like the plague. But John chapter 4 tells us, no, he had to go to Samaria. Why? Well, because it was the appointed time. At least for one woman. As he met her at Jacob's well in Samaria, Nablus today. 
And there at Jacob's well, sat down, asked this woman for a drink. She's shocked. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. Why is this guy talking to her at all? It's the middle of the day. It is not the time to draw out the well. The rest of the women would have, women would have done it in the morning. And there she is. And he asks her for a drink. And then he says to her, You know, I'm adding that you know, making it more casual. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so there it is, the river of life. And it is throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, the heart of God to wash His people clean. It's what He does. This fountain in Jerusalem is going to be, as I said, a beautiful reminder of the true source of cleansing in all the land. And it's going to flow throughout the Millennial Kingdom. And as you see it, as you notice it, as you're going about your duties there in the rule and reign with Jesus, remember... That's a fountain of cleansing. That reminds me, I have been completely washed. And when you remember that, praise the Lord. Ezekiel 36.25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Which leads us kind of into the next part of the prophecy here. The next six verses are actually uh, somewhat parenthetical. Because they're not talking so much about the day as, as much as the need for and the source of this cleansing. Watch this, verse 2. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. And they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live. Now, I've said that to my kids. (laughs) I brought you into this world. I can take you out. You want to see next week? Because I'll send you there. (laughs) The parents will say, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. That is serious. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. You see, that's what the prophets tended to wear. You know, Elijah had a hairy robe. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he was wearing a hairy robe and people looked at him and went, prophet. The false prophets would do the same thing. They would dress themselves up to look the part. They would slide in and act the role. And then mislead the people. So much for hairy robes. Verse 5, But he will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. Let me explain what's going on here. Three contaminants are mentioned here that must be cleansed from the land in that day. Three contaminants. And the first one he calls out in verse 2, the impurity of idolatry. He's got to clean idolatry out of the land in that day. Now again, this is parenthetical in that he's talking about these contaminants that need to be washed clean. He's already introduced the fount that's going to do the job. 
He's already said there's going to be a cleansing of sin and impurity, but now let's look specifically at the things that need to be washed out, need to be cleansed from the land in that day. Idolatry. The impurity of idolatry. Micah chapter 5 verse 13, he said, I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. Now I thought idolatry had long since ceased to be an issue for the Jewish people. I mean, haven't we seen that in our studies before that when they came back from Babylon, they got their fill of idolatry. It was like the shikshadel of, of idol worship. You want idols? You got them. And they got sick of it. And when they came back into the land, when Jesus came on the scene, He wasn't dealing with idolatry. Not, not in the traditional sense. There were no Asherah poles. There were no statues to Molech. There were no uh, you know, palaces or, or temples to the idols. That, that wasn't going on. And all of a sudden... He's talking about idolatry again in that day. Is idolatry a problem in Israel today? <laughs> is it a problem in America? Let's just let's own this thing. Idolatry is a problem in the world because idolatry is any go-to device of worship. Could be Russell Wilson. He might be your idol. Or there may be an American idol, I don't know. There's all kinds of idolatry. In Israel, and I thought about this, because we've talked about some of the amulets and some of the, the things that you can buy in the gift shops, the little hand um, that you can buy that has the eye in it, the all-seeing eye, and all the, the weird little things like that. And those are idols. Those would fall into that category. But what about the shrines? All around the land, the tomb of Rachel, the cave of the patriarchs down in Hebron, which I've been to and I've seen, and it's strange to go inside that. It's strange to see these these huge, what look like coffins that are draped with with ornate uh, coverings. And they say, "Oh yeah, that's, that's where that's that's Abraham, and, and that's that's." And do we know? We don't know. You know, and I don't think we could even DNA test at this point. But the cave of the patriarchs is there. What about the tomb of David, which we know? is not the tomb of David. And yet go in there, every tour we go on visits the tomb of David. We see it, it's interesting, you know. And there are Jewish men in there praying, reading Torah, studying, doing the the prayer that the Hasidic Jews will do where they're in constant motion, which is not a bad idea because it does keep you awake. (laughs) I'll give them that. What about the Western Wall? crammed full of little pieces of paper that are people's prayers that they hope if they stuff a prayer into the wall it's going to somehow get to God. Interesting. I have to ask, is it the Lord you're going to worship or is it the location? And so yes, there is idolatry in the land. There is idolatry throughout the world today. But remember this, God is addressing the removal of the impurity of idolatry in that day and one idol is going to trump them all. Matthew 24.15, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, which was spoken in Daniel 9.27, Jesus said, When you see it standing in the holy place, and let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation. The image of the beast. That image that will be set up in the temple. We have a precursor of it. 
that happened back 164-165 BC by Antiochus Epiphanes. And if you've studied this, you know that name. Antiochus the Madman who came in, that Greek ruler, and, and set up a temple, uh, an idol in the temple, and spattered pig's blood everywhere. And it was idolatry in the highest. But it was just a picture. Because Jesus picks up on the abomination of desolation and says, when you see, not when you saw, when you see it, run, flee. The idol will be set up again. Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, He's the one who opposes him and exalts himself, that is the Antichrist, above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being from God. He's going to actually set up shop in the temple, the tribulation temple, the temple that will be, must be, if scripture is accurate, must be rebuilt, and will be inhabited at the midpoint of the tribulation by Antichrist which is the full-blown abomination of desolation. And the book of Revelation tells us very clearly that there is an actual image to the beast that is set up. But idolatry in its final form will be washed away. Second problem here, second thing that needs to be cleaned out of the land, the filth of the false prophets. Now this is interesting. Verses 3 through 5, the Lord now recalls the death penalty for false prophecy. It's Torah law. The, the people of Israel were taught this very thing. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. God's law. And you might say, well, that... It just seems a little harsh. All the death penalties, you know, in, in, the, in the old law. Why should the false prophet have to die? I mean, how about a slap on the hand? Or, or, you know, can he be sent to his room? Or something a little less harsh. Here's the thing. The false teaching of one condemns the many. How much is a life worth? And if one man is teaching false teaching, if he is prophesying lies and ten people follow after, you just lost ten lives for eternity. And so the Lord says, the one shall die. I want him out. Because you will not lead my people astray. See, this word, this word saves. This word washes. This word is worth the hearing. All the other stuff is not worth it. All the self-help stuff. And I, this is one of my soapboxes, I know. But the self-help books that people get so into, oh, it changed my life. No, it didn't. It may have given you an, a year or two of, of a positive direction, but it always breaks down. This does not. This word saves all other directions, destroy, and God doesn't mess around with damning detours. And I chose that word purposefully. Directions that will send to hell. And the false prophets taught false things. And the Lord said, you will not teach this. The false prophet shall die. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2 verse 1 that false prophets also arose among the people. Speaking past tense. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Do you know how easy, do you realize how easy it is for a pastor to lead a church astray? I mean, I see people nodding all the time. 
Some nodding in agreement, others nodding off. But I see the nods. And it strikes me from time to time. And I'm so thankful that you sit there with Bibles open and pens at the ready. And I'm so appreciative of the questions that come afterward. You said this, I'm not sure I agree with that. Can you explain a little more or whatever? Because it is so easy to be deceived by by a speaker, by a teacher, by someone that you think you know, that you think you trust. And so you need the Word. Peter said many will follow their their sensuality. What does that mean? Is that a sexual thing? No, it just means that they're going to appeal to what people want to hear. It feels good. Oprah, man, the thing she shares feels good. People walk out of her big Oprah things and they're just jazzed. Wow, my life is so much better because of Oprah. Really? He says, because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned and in greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. God knows who's going to lie. And He's already scheduled them for their own appointed time. Now, what's interesting is you get down to about verse 5. And there's all this stuff about the death penalty for the false prophet and the hairy robe and everything else. But all of a sudden in verse 5, the false prophet will say, Oh, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. He's dodging his occupation. This false prophet is saying, Oh, I'm I'm not a prophet. I'm just a dirt farmer. That's what I do. So he's, he's trying to get away from this idea. He's trying to hide from it so that he can continue bringing the lies. But again, the Lord is focused in that day. And just as there is a final idol, so there is also a final false prophet. Turn your Bibles over to Revelation 13 real quickly, if you will. Revelation 13. It's not a difficult book to find. Revelation 13, verse 11. The first half of Revelation 13 has already talked about the beast from the sea, which is the Antichrist. Well, now all of a sudden we see a second beast. There's more than one? Yes, watch this. Revelation 13, verse 11. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth or out of the land. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. What's that all about? You're going to have to listen to the Revelation study. Verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Magic tricks. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to, watch this, make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This image, this idol is going to start talking. And the false prophet is going to be in charge of this and wooing people to worship the idol and worship the beast. That's the job of the last of the false prophets. And God says, I'm going to wash them out of the land in that day. I'm going to wash out the idolatry, the abomination of desolation, gone. I'm going to wash out the false prophets, even the last, the worst of them, the false prophet who follows along with Antichrist. 
So idols, check. False prophets, check. There's one more thing that needs to be washed out of the land. Look back in verse 2. He says, And the unclean spirit. What I would call the squalor of the unclean spirit. Unclean spirit in the Hebrew is Ruach Hatumah. The Holy Spirit in the Hebrew is Ruach HaKodesh. This would purport to be, would attempt to be, would want to look as though He were uh, one on a par with the Holy Spirit of the living God. The problem is that the Holy Spirit of the living God is the Spirit of the Lord, whereas the Ruach HaTumah, the unclean spirit, is just a demon. It's nothing special. But... This is not a generic sense or feeling. Understand, the unclean spirit that is washed in the land is not the dark side of the force. And there are those who would even say Satan is just that, just a bad feeling, just a a, a generic thing. Jesus didn't think so. Jesus very clearly taught about demons and demonology and unclean spirits, and he cast them out, personalities. He referred to Satan as a personality. There is no question but that Jesus believed and knew Satan was a person. So this unclean spirit. I believe he's the principality in the land. And I believe personally that this is the spirit of Antichrist himself. Revelation 13 at the end of the chapter tells us, don't be surprised, it's it's very simple to understand that Antichrist is just a man. His number is 666, right? It's not a mystical number. It's just a number that implies a human being. This is the number of a man. Antichrist is just a guy who will rise up, who will achieve some degree of fame and notoriety, who will be a great speaker, who will be loved around the earth until he is inhabited by the spirit, this unclean spirit, the spirit of Antichrist, a demonic presence that I believe we can track through every generation all the way back in history. That Satan has had the unclean spirit on hand, ready to go in every generation. Well, why is that? Because he never knew when the day or the hour would be. He would have to have someone ready to go, a spirit ready to to inhabit this Antichrist character if it happened to be that generation. And we've seen the moving of this spirit, I believe, uh, well, I know we have in Judah or Judas, He filled Judas. Judas is called the son of perdition. Paul called the unclean spirit of Antichrist the son of perdition. Both phrases used for the same. We see that spirit, I believe, in Nero. And then we saw the spirit of Antichrist at work in Hitler. We've seen this spirit before. On hand, every generation, John writes in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and John doesn't deny that, he says, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know is the last hour. In 2 John, verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So the Lord says, I'm going to wash the land. I'm going to clean it out. Idols, false prophets, and the unclean spirit are going to be washed away when the fount is opened up in Jerusalem in that day. And John described it like this. Revelation 19, verse 20, the beast was seized. Antichrist. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped the image. 
And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone gone. The land will be clean once again. Now we get to an interesting verse here in the passage, verse 6, which says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. John chapter 1, verse 11 tells us, speaking of Messiah, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. And I believe verse 6 does refer to Jesus, who was wounded in the house of His friends. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. He came to His friends. The word there can also be translated, uh, beloved, loved ones. His relations, those close to Him, He came to them and they did not receive Him. What are these wounds between your arms? He will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, here's the problem. If you're just reading along through the chapter and you've just read verse 5, where this false prophet is speaking, I'm not a prophet, I'm a tiller of the ground, a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are those wounds between your arms? You might immediately think, well, him, it's the false prophet still, right? That we're talking to. Or talking about. And some Bible scholars do take this as a continuation of the false prophet who is still trying to throw off his accusers. I'm not a prophet, I'm a tiller of the ground. What are these wounds? And they say the wounds are self-inflicted wounds of false prophets. The things that they would do when they go into the temple. They would actually inflict wounds upon themselves. Remember when uh, Elijah was fighting against the prophets of Baal, what did they do when they were trying to get their God to answer? They cut themselves. And so, some say, that's what we're talking about here. These wounds that are between your arms, well, I was wounded in the house of my friends, he answers. And again, he's trying to throw them off because he's saying, I I was already disciplined for for this. I was already wounded for my false prophecy. I I already, by those who know me, it was taken care of, it's cool, it's it's not going to be a problem anymore. And so some say that's what's going on here. This is difficult to translate. But as we read through this, I do truly believe verse 6 is a shift. Verse 5 is about the false prophet. Verse 6 is not about the false prophet. Verse 6 is about the Messiah. And I'll give you three reasons why I think so. And then you can chew on this and decide on your own. It's not going to change your salvation. You know, I'm not bowing down and worshiping verse 6. But I do believe verse 6 speaks of Messiah. Why? Number one, I believe it speaks of Jesus in composition. In composition. What are these wounds between your arms is the New American Standard translation. The Hebrew is makah ben yad. Yad means hands. As in yad vashem. Have you heard of yad vashem? The Holocaust memorial that is in Jerusalem. Yad vashem, which means a hand and a name. A hand and a name. It's from Isaiah 56 verse 5. You have given us a hand and a name. And so they have that name Yad Vashem. Makkah, Bain Yad, literally translated means, what are these wounds in your hands? These are not self-inflicted wounds on the body between the arms. These are wounds on the hands. What are these wounds in your hands? John chapter 20, verse 25. Thomas said, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
I've told you before, I don't think Thomas was doubting. I think he was hurt. I think this came from a man who loved Jesus. But in that moment said, I just can't go there. Don't ask me to hurt like that again. Don't deceive me. I, I, unless I can actually touch him, I can't believe in him. Eight days later, Thomas did. Jesus showed up and said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. His hands that were wounded. So the very composition of the language points to wounded hands, not a wounded body. Secondly, I think we see that this is Messiah in contrast. I think that verse 6 is the contrast to verse 5. In the same way that there is a contrast between the true prophet and the false prophet in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 verse 18 says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Speaking of Messiah, speaking of the true prophet, that's Deuteronomy 18.18. Deuteronomy 18.20 is talking about the false prophet and death to those who are false prophets. I think we're seeing the same thing here, a contrast between the false prophet in verse 5 and suddenly shifting and looking now and one will say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? And he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. You want to know the greatest sign of the true prophet that we will have in all eternity? It's the nail prints in his hands. John says, when I saw him, he looked as though he was a lamb having been slain. The wounds are there. The nail prints are there. So I think we see between, again, verse 5 and verse 6, the same kind of contrast between false prophet and true prophet Jesus as we do between the false prophet and the true prophet in Deuteronomy 18. One more thing. I think we see Jesus in the context of this. You see, those who say that this is the false prophet in verse 6... Do so because they say it would be too abrupt a change to go from verse 5 to verse 6 and suddenly be talking about someone else. If in verse 5 it's the false prophet, how can you say in verse 6 that it's Messiah? Suddenly this change. And I would reply, if that's your argument, then we have an equally abrupt change from verse 6 to verse 7. Because in verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, and that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. My friends, verse 6 more beautifully and perfectly aligns with verse 7. What are these wounds in your hands? Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And God immediately says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who? The guy in verse 6. The one with the nail prints. The one with the wounds. And we know, by the way, we absolutely know the identity of the shepherd in verse 7 because Jesus owned it. Jesus grabbed hold of that verse and said in Matthew 26, 31, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Jesus quotes verse 7 of Zechariah 13 and says, that's me. And he's talking to his apostles and he says, that's about to take place. This prophecy is just about to be fulfilled. Mark verifies that same claim of Jesus in Mark chapter 14 verse 27. So twice we see this quoted by the gospel writers. For me, more compelling than anything else is the testimony of Jesus 
in the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10 Did Jesus receive wounds in His hands from His friends? Yes, He did. Is He the true shepherd of Deuteronomy 18? Yes, He is. Was He the shepherd struck whose sheep were scattered? No question about it. And I think when we look at all of that together, we know who this one with the wounded hands in verse 6 truly is. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And note that it is God the Father who calls in the strike. It is the Lord who says in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man, my associate declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Note this, he calls him my shepherd. Well, we understand that. The good shepherd, Jesus, takes that on himself. We can see that. We can apply that to Jesus very simply, very easily. But he also calls him something else. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. The man, my associate. Al-Gaber Amitai. Al-Gaber, the man. Amitai, my, my fellow, my relation, my equal. That's what he's saying. The man, my associate, that makes no sense, especially from a Hebrew perspective. How in the world can he be a man, Al-Gaber, and also be Amitai to the Lord, his associate? How can any man be considered and called as one equal to the Lord, a relation of the Lord God? I mean, that's blasphemy, the good Hebrew would think. And yet it is the Lord who speaks these words, the man, my associate. And it brings home the idea of Zechariah 12.10, they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Because to pierce the son is to pierce the father. Because to kill the son is, in essence, to kill the father. It is God that we're dealing with in both instances, God the father, God the son. Distinct, and yet absolutely one and equal associates. The man, my associate. Paul says it plainly. If you wonder about these types of things, there's so much scripture that implies and and expresses to us the truth of the Trinity and the equality within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And of course, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Yet, because of the house of His friends, the house of His friends, they did not receive Him, their reconciling is going to be painful. Painstaking. Verse 8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And according to the prophecy of Zechariah, and there is no reason to think that this is allegorical at all, according to what the prophet tells us, in that day, one-third of all the world's Jews will have survived the tribulation. Only one-third. 
Two out of every three Jews in that final seven-year period of time will be killed, will die. One-third will come through the fire. But here's the good news. Of this third of Israel, this remnant, there will not be a single unbeliever. Every one of the standing Jews at the end of the tribulation will believe in Yeshua HaMashiach, their Messiah, Jesus Christ. They will look, they will know. That's why they're mourning for Him as one mourns for an only son when they see Him coming. They are believers. Every Jew alive at that time. I don't say that, by the way, and I I know this is hard teaching. I don't say it with joy. I don't say it with expectation. Oh yeah, two-thirds of the world's Jews are going to finally be taken care of. Not even close. It's a tragedy. And as we talked about some other things on Sunday, it is not what God wants for His people, but it's what God has seen for His people. It's what He declares is going to happen. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It's the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Matthew 24, 21, There will be a great tribulation, Jesus says, just as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days have been cut short. No life would have been saved. How short, Lord? Seven years. But for the sake of the elect, he says, those days will be cut short. The elect is not the church. Because the elect is not present. If the church is the elect, they're not present in those days. We're with Jesus. The elect in those days that need to be shortened so that they will survive is his elect, is his chosen people, Israel. And he will save them. And so when Paul says in Romans 11.26, and so all Israel will be saved, understand this, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. All Israel is all Israel. That one third, all that is left, standing alive in that day, every last one of them will be saved. People take that verse and they get confused by it. You know, sometimes people say, oh, well, I guess just because they're Jewish, they're saved, right? That's how it works. You get a special dispensation. As long as you were born a Jew, you're going to be saved. Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but through me. And as we read a moment ago, Paul said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There is only one way and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Which is how I know That one-third that gets through the fire, that is refined, they will be saved by faith in Jesus. Purification can be painful. I don't think any of us will experience in our lifetime what Israel has gone through and will go through in that time of tribulation. But purification can still be painful. We all go through purifying periods of time when God does things, when He takes pain and and ache and hardship and He walks us through it and He makes us stronger because of it. He purifies. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you greatly rejoice that even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it will for Israel. 
praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Look at the last part of verse 9. He says, they will call on my name and I will answer them. He says, I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God.